Godfrey, is this a week that we start acting like this is a professional endeavor on our part, like where we introduce ourselves and everything? I, I don't know if I would use the word professional endeavor, but we are definitely trying to get some money out of people. So oh, I mean, that's, that's why we stepped up our game and got a guest. You've been way too modest about this entire affair, I've got to say. I, I'm terrible at self-promotion, that's why. Okay. My, so, my wife tells me that on a daily basis. As, as anyone listening knows, because we've just been horrendous about tweeting it and Facebooking it and everything else, Bill has a book project underway. The Kickstarter is, where are we right now, Bill? About 10 days to go? Less than that? Uh, two weeks. Two weeks to, from today, basically. Okay. Two weeks from today. Uh, we've got a raise. I think is it's a, right around $5,500 or $6,000. If you're listening, the easiest way to do that, go in, pledge $25 or more. You're going to get a free copy of Bill's book. So we thought, what better way to raise funds this week than to podcast three times normally than we would and bring on <laughs> guests. And because we're quasi-legitimate at what we're doing, we decided to actually bring on like a, like a journalism-y guest instead of just all these you know roughshod, amateur blogger-type friends that we have. So <laughs> um, let's, uh, let's welcome in Bruce Feldman. Well, I should tell you, according to my wife, I am horrible at self-promotion in another way because – Whenever I will say, hey, I did the laundry, I picked this up, I took the garbage out, she's like, just do it. I don't need to hear you. You don't need to tell me all you do these things. So I'm on the shameless I just had that exact uh, argument with my wife last yeah. night, so that's good to know. <laughs> well, this one, uh, this one has been especially hard for me because it involves money. Basically, Kickstarter, and I, I think I've said this last week too, Kickstarter is terrifying because you basically name a dollar amount and then you, determine, then you find out whether people actually decide you're worth that. Um, but yeah, we're about two thirds of the way there and halfway through the month. That's, I'm, I'm pretty happy with the progress. I have nothing to compare it to, but yeah, we thought this week it would be kind of fun to, the original idea was like a live podcast on a Wednesday night or something like that until Ty from Solid Verbal reminded us that, you know, anybody who listens to this podcast is used to getting it a certain way and saying, Hey, everybody listen at the same time. Doesn't really work very well. Um. But my idea of my I wanted to do a Jerry Lewis style telethon where I hold one of those old like Bob Barker pencil mics, get up there in like a bad pastel suit and talk about how, you know, Bill's going to die of cancer if we don't raise enough money. But apparently the logistics were too tough. So we're just going to sit here in the dark and podcast. That's right. It, you know, being, doing it this way allows us to actually get good guests or, you know, good guests and Ryan Nanny. Right. But, um, <laughs> But anyway, so I do appreciate it, Bruce. You've always been very nice uh, through the years here, and, and I thought you'd be a, a pretty fun person to bring on and talk about, start talking about at least, the, the topic of the, the book itself, which is basically the, the best, most influential, most interesting teams in, in college football's history. Um, so I'll, I'll th when I say those words, what's the first team that pops into your head? Uh, Larry Coker's first year as Miami head coach, that was mm. the most talented team by far that I've ever covered. I've, I would say I probably span, and I, I, we talked about this right before we went online. You know, when you start talking about teams from the sixties and the seventies, and obviously way before that, I don't, you know, I didn't see them. I was not covering the sports. So I've covered the sport, I would say for, for about 20 years. Uh, that Miami team was by far the most talented. When you look at not just what they were at the time or how they dominated people and dominated some good teams. But also when you look at, I hate to, you know, go this route, but it, it does seem to be as, as good a metric as almost anything else is, you know, what, what were these guys like when they went on to the NFL and how good were they there? And that's not to say that that should be the only measuring stick, but I do think that's a certain barometer that does carry some weight. And you look at some of those players, not just the starters, but it was ridiculous how many guys were first round picks. But then you look at some of the guys who were on the who were coming off the bench. It was a crazy amount of talent. And I also thought that there was a team with a lot of focus that they had. And, and you saw what they did to a, to a lot of other good teams. <laughs> yeah, from a, a number standpoint, it's always kind of interesting. Like when I uh, back in, I think, 2010, I put out like at football outsiders i had just came up with a little primitive way to use the scores of games and and grade out the teams and and oh, oh one miami blew everybody away in the 2000s but um i talked to bino cook um I, I basically got his number and cold called him first and then we ended up doing a podcast later but uh you know i, I started listening the listing the names at the top of the list and he just stopped me and said 1947 notre dame isn't in that list therefore it's a, it's a really dumb list um and, and he, you know, he's, he was, it was Bino. So he went on a beautiful rant about all the reasons why that was. But, um, 
But yeah, his his metric was kind of the same way. It was basically like the 1947 Notre Dame had NFL players on the third string. And, you know, they didn't lose. They weren't really challenged all that much. Therefore, you know, that that's that's all he needed to hear. And, and, um, and it's hard to ignore. Like, obviously, in a vacuum, the numbers will look at, you know, within, in a vacuum, this is what happened this year, strength of schedule and all that. But it's so hard to ignore the teams that were on the second string in, in 2001. Yeah, the other thing that's a little tricky with some of this when you start going back in history is – Sport wasn't really integrated racially yeah. Yeah. Uh, for a long, long time. Just as an aside on this, a- about a month ago, I went down to San Diego to go see uh, Connor Cook and Cardell Jones where they were training. They were training with George Whitfield. And there's a bunch of these you know, private quarterback coaches down there, so I've seen you know, a lot of different guys in, in, in Southern California. Well, the guy Whitfield is using to train them in their classroom stuff uh, for the on-the-field X's and O's and, and, you know, understanding protections and fronts and all that stuff is Jimmy Ray. And I knew Jimmy Ray's name. I had never met him, but I knew he was a longtime NFL assistant. And we ended up going to lunch, and he was maybe the most fascinating uh, football person I've ever talked to because, he, first of all, you talk to him for 10 minutes and you realize Duffy Doherty – it does not get anywhere near the credit he deserves for being a pioneer in, in football and the role he had because Jimmy Ray was, when the sport was getting integrated, there had been African-American players at, at certain programs before. Not a lot, but certain programs and in the Big Ten, but they hadn't come from the South, and he was one of those who came from the, came from the Deep South, and he was on one of those teams that's probably one of the great teams of all time. Uh, it was the team that tied Notre Dame, and it was Bubba Smith and George Webster. Uh, Jimmy was the quarterback. There was just a lot of talent, and and I say that is just, you know, he had mentioned George Webster was one of the one of the greatest players who you know who college football seen. I think George Webster he said grew grew up like three miles from Clemson, and and you know Frank Howard, the head coach at the time, legendary head coach, knew he couldn't take him, but was friendly, I guess, with Duffy Doherty and and. You know, basically helped him recruit him from there. And I think when you had that, it split the, uh, you know, it, it just depended on who you were playing competition-wise. I also think there was different scholarship issues where you could stockpile talent. Um, it, was just a, it was just a different animal. I think that's part of why I think what Saban, what uh, Nick Saban has, has done in Alabama is so remarkable in this year, especially of entitlement and guys coming in as, you know, five-star head cases sometimes. I mean, it's, it's just that much more impressive. So I think it's hard. Like, I, I give you credit for how you're going to do this, you know, because I know I know the work you do and everything. But I was like, man, you're going to, you know, it's the ultimate barroom debate, you know. And, <laughs> right. and I, you know, it's cool that you bring Bino Cook's name up because he's one of the few guys who can, who can really, who could have extended back, you know, beyond before the sport was really integrated. Yeah, the integration thing is interesting because, uh, I, and I mean, my list here is just purely subjective, like no no number aspect to it, but I think I will include kind of a numbers because it's me. There, there will be some aspect of, you know, this was uh, the you know number 87 team of all time, blah, 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 blah. blah. Um, one of the most interesting things to me uh, it deals with integration. Like the, the 1959 Ole Miss and 1959 Syracuse were maybe two of the – three or four best teams of all the 50s, but they couldn't play each other because Ole Miss wouldn't play uh, integrated teams. Um, and, and so that just kind of stands out. I talked to, when I, when, after I talked to Bino, I talked to the captain of that 59 Ole Miss team because they were, even though they lost to Billy Cannon, they were the number one team on the list because they had only given up like three touchdowns all year. It was Cannon's touchdown. It was a three-yard drive after a fumble and like a seven-yard drive after a fumble, and that was it. Um, they were completely dominant in every way. Um, but I asked the, the captain of it, he's like, you know, how did you deal with that at the time? And he just said, you know, you, you played who you were told to play and that sucks. You know, you do, there are, that, there are a lot of interesting teams at that time that just weren't going to play each other. I would think that, uh, and Bruce touched on it a little bit and I haven't, I haven't even pitched anything to you, Bill, on this list because I should become a donor on your Kickstarter in order to <laughs> do that. Um, see, see, that's how you sell. You get it? Yeah, uh, I was okay. just gonna give you, you know, I was gonna give you both just, you know, a free book. Oh, no, no, you should, you should charge me anyway. Okay. Yes, yeah, so we should, we should, uh, we should. Yes, because I feel like you guys have promoted each other and my stuff over the years. That I think, 
you know, one of my friends who's, who's a media person said that's, you know, that's the right thing to do. So Godfrey's right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what Bruce touched on with Saban, if I had to, and again, just giant caveat on when you come into the sport as a professional, when you come in as a viewer, I think you look at things you can, you can read. And I love to, I'm reading the undefeated book about Oklahoma right now. It, it, there's, there's a vantage point where a certain, it, it becomes history. You know, it's it's not something I'm ever going to remember as happening anecdotally week by week, seeing those seasons develop. It all is just history. So I can only look from when I came into the sport as a fan and then as a professional. And for me, if I had to pick the most important team based on the region of the country in which I sort of learned to embrace the sport, it would be 2003 LSU. It would be the first of the Saban teams to win a title, how it was built, what it was built from not just in terms of uh, defensive-minded NFL talent, the way he scouted recruiting, but also what he what he got when he went to Baton Rouge and what he built that thing out of. Because I don't know if there's ever been a, a more lasting and effective program overhaul at the very top in the last 20 years. People don't realize this, and it's kind of funny to talk to younger fans or younger journalists, younger than, than myself. I mean, LSU was a car wreck for years. It was always this collection of potential and, and, and misfit parts and bad bad involvement from the state legislature and competing boosters. Saban fixed all of that, and whatever you think of Miles, he's continued it on. You, you haven't seen a kind of, I wouldn't even say resurrection because it was so, well, maybe resurrection from the 50s, but LSU was obsolete for the longest amount of time. So that would be my vote, and, and while the football was significant, I think it, it's probably my vote for all the stuff that happened off the field. Okay, yeah, the and that was really tricky, like trying to figure out the limit or how to, how to limit the the '90s and 2000s teams um, that I had on there because I, I could easily have done one like the national champion from every year. But uh, from the 2000s, and I'll pull up the list here, like the the teams I've chosen from the 2000s, so that you can partially critique me here. Um, O2 USC. I, I seem to there, – there were a few of these teams on here. The team that basically started off a big run. Um, the, the 70 Alabama team that lost a bunch of close games and then barely lost for the next, like, nine years. Um, O2, to, uh, O2 USC. O4 Texas, same kind of deal. The team that, you know, Vince Young gets benched against Missouri and then, like, two weeks later and for the rest of his career, he is Vince Young, uh, the, you know, the great. O7 Oregon because of Chip Kelly. Uh, and, 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 you know, Michigan still hasn't tackled him. Hey, let me, uh, let me, let me just interject quickly. Cause I know when Godfrey brought this up and it's like, I think, he, I think the word he words he used were most important or, um, yeah. influential, influential. Yeah. yeah, yeah anything like you. that. So, cause I have a, like, just as we're saying this, I'm like separating, I've been so conditioned to think of best versus influential. Mm. you know, and, and they're often the same. Yeah, they are, but sometimes they're not. I mean, you know, again, I'm sorry, you go ahead and then I'm going to come up with a point now that I'm thinking <laughs> in a different direction. <laughs> okay. So the, the other three teams of, of the 21st century after 07 Oregon, 2010 Boise state, maybe the best mid major in the last, at least since 84 BYU. And I think they were probably better than 84 BYU. Um, 2011 LSU, uh, one of maybe maybe the best regular season run in the, in a high personality defense, and then laid a complete and total egg in the national title game uh, in 2013. Auburn, of course, because because uh, you know v- very many obvious reasons. So those are the uh, six teams from the 21st century. Okay, so let me work backwards a little, and I'll say what I was going to say. So the uh, the LSU point, and I I agree they were an awesome team, you know, with on a lot of fronts. The one thing that to me would take them off that was, you know, just, I saw both Alabama games and, you know, the quarterback play was so bad and it's such an important position. I don't know. Can you, can you have them anywhere near the discussion when you are so void at that, at the most important position? Bruce, what was your, I was at the nine, six game. What was like, everyone has, it's like, we have to choose a side on uh, legendary, memorable or terrible football. <laughs> I, I, I'm more on the, it was memorable just because of how bizarre it was. It, it's not really watchable football. If you go back and look at that game, you know, when you say that that day was one of the more memorable ones I can think of in college football and not because of the actual game, like wherever we stayed, you know, I think I may have stayed in, in Birmingham or whatever. Um, 
and I was with a couple of other writers, and that was the weekend that Sarah Ganim, you know, kind of blew up the the Sandusky story. And I remember before the game, you know, Godfrey, you're right. I don't know what how many people they credentialed there, but it seemed like it was almost wasn't as big as a national title game, but it was bigger than it was bigger than the than the Orange Bowl that I covered. That was a semifinal game in terms of you know national media. And I just remember that was the big discussion is what the hell is going on there? And then where is this story going to the point when, you know, I don't know if it was a, how late the game actually ended, I, but I remember driving back with a couple other sports writers. We were following a car of other sports writers and everybody was talking about what is our game plan now or how are we getting to state college tomorrow? And so I remember, yeah, I remember the game and I remember like the great interception and, you know, when you're there and it's a close game, I don't feel like it feels bad, like it's bad football. Am I, I mean, is that a wrong? To me, it's hard to find really, really bad football, you know, out of a game like that if it's competitive. And I thought there was a lot of drama in the game, so I, I didn't think it was bad football um, or, you know, unwatchable or whatever you want to say uh, like that. But that's my memory is, the, is how much the Penn State story – it was like an avalanche that was basically just about to overtake the sport for sports, really, for the next couple of weeks. Well, I, I think, you know, number one, there were so many good defensive players in the game that that helps. It wasn't just offenses falling over and losing the ball. It was defenses making plays to stop. And then, you know, missed field goals, too, I guess. But, um, you know, so I, I didn't really it wasn't a game I ever wanted to rewatch but it felt significant and huge and and quote-unquote great and everything and I will say too um I wasn't there but the next uh, whatever September I guess is when I did kind of a big SEC road trip piece and um a friend of mine kind of walked us through uh the the campus and all the surrounding areas and like he, he and I, I think a couple others too like at some point or another it was like you know and here's where this happens when LSU was here last year da 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 uh, for the LS game, LSU game last year, it was it was like this significant moment in Tuscaloosa uh, because of of the intensity and and the hundreds of thousands of people who were there. Not, you know, many who weren't even even going to pretend to try to go to the game. Um, and you know, combine that with a lot of future pros, it still felt like a pretty good game to me. Yeah, for me, the the and I don't know if you mentioned one this one team in your 2000s team, but. The second, the two other teams after the Miami team that were the best teams I've covered were 2005 Texas. Mm. That was the one that beat USC. You know, Vince Young was 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 Superman that day. Uh, but also, you, that was a loaded team in terms of you know Michael Huff and Michael Griffin were secondary guys who go to the first round. Uh, Cedric Griffin and Aaron Ross were really good. Jamal Charles has obviously been really good. They had. You know, back then, they actually had good linemen on both sides of the ball, <laughs> something, you know, it's, you can't really say that on the offensive line for, for UT now. Um, also, I thought Pete Carroll's best team was 2004. They just lit up Oklahoma in the, in the uh, Orange Bowl. You know, Leinart was sharp. They had, you know, Lendale and Bush. And uh, I thought it was a better defensive team because, you know, Lofa Tatupu was still there. He was a really, really underrated, really good player. Uh, the part where, and again, we're all kind of, um, we're all, I think, a little bit guilty of getting sucked into our local surroundings. I live in Southern California. There's a lot, there's a lot of affinity for the USC program. And I, I think, I mean, I had them behind the Texas team just because I remember, you know, I saw probably four of their games in person. One of them, Aaron Rodgers, was nearly flawless and almost beat them with a good, talented Cal team. But then they, you know, they had their hands full against a really average Oregon State team. They struggled to beat Cal, uh, you know, and then they barely beat UCLA. I mean, UCLA was not bad, but it was just like they weren't a dominant team. Uh, when you were talking about influential, this kind of came in my head, especially when you said Oregon. You know, Leach's first team at Texas Tech, yeah. in terms of just the guys who were on that, if like if you look at a picture of the team, uh, how many coaches have gone on, whether GAs or obviously Cliff Kingsbury is now a head coach. He was the quarterback of the team. But there are a lot of guys on that group, you know, whether it's Sonny Cumbie or Sonny Dykes or Dana Holgerson. Uh, you know, it's just a lot of dudes who are like who have been innovative. And 
not only have they shaped how some of the some of the wrinkles of offense in football, not just college football, but it's also they've kind of shaped how the response to it and how defensive coaches have had to adapt. So, I mean, I, was that a great team? No, it was a barely a bowl team, but it was it was an interestingly influential team, and I never would have thought of it until and I'm not saying they were anywhere near as good as the Oregon team you mentioned but just in terms of just kind of the personalities on that team and the 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 environment around there at that point yeah that that team uh, looking I'm looking through the list of teams that almost made it from the 2000s that was on there uh 2000 Northwestern it was basically like four teams that were Mm -hmm. all very very interesting and innovative offensively um and it was really hard. I think the Oregon chapter is just going to be basically a summary of 10 years worth of innovation. But, um, yeah, no, the Kingsbury and Cumbie especially, there are so many guys. Um, and I remember even 02, I think, a couple of years later when they really started to become good. I think 02 was – I think that was Kingsbury's senior year. Yeah, it would have um, been, yeah. Cause he was where the they, were, they were rounded into shape. Like that was, that was, a, the, that was a completely murderous tech offense. Um, and I, that, that team was definitely on that list. I always, and again, it's not about best because that's just a, a fool's errand. But I've, you know, what Bruce was talking about with with falling prey to regionalism or being provincial, I always look at the reverse of that. When when I was coming up through the SEC, that's when that whole we chant the conference name thing started. And you know, there were just there were there were not a lot of times when you would find a consensus of local media, local fans, and boosters, and, other, and even coaches that would acknowledge a team outside the SEC as being, you know, guys just saying, I I really don't think we could beat them, or I really, you know, they are the best team in college football. And it was the Carroll USC teams and and Coker's Miami are the two that really jump out at me. And I don't mean to say that to sort of inadvertently troll Ohio State fans, but it's the truth. (laughs) At no point in time has has really since 2000 and – I don't know, 2000, I guess maybe Vince Young in Texas, I would throw in there as well. Begrudgingly, not on my half, just on the, on the fans that I've talked to and the the people in this, in this little corner of the country. But, you know, ever since then, the SEC has always thought that they could, if if they couldn't feel the absolute empirical best team every season, that they could beat the team that everyone thought was the best, (laughs) you know, even, even going into Ohio state last year, which was, which was stupid because they got trounced. Yeah. I remember when, uh, Arkansas, when they had Darren McFadden, came out here to play USC, oh. and USC just beat the crap out of them. If, if like, Pete Carroll wanted to say, hey, I'm going to hang 100 on Houston Nut today, it would have <laughs> happened, like, if he yeah. wanted to. And, you know, there were there were games like that. I mean, they, they went in and lit up a good Auburn team at Auburn, you know, early on. I think that might have been Leinert's first game. Yeah. So... Oh yeah, no Tuberville. I asked Tuberville about that game a year ago, and he talks about how just absolutely, you know, they felt they were outmanned in talent-wise. <laughs> I mean, you just you don't say that. You, people don't say that about any top-tier ICC program anymore. So those stick out to me. I guess just you know, sometimes I think provincialism is a good thing. I this last night and this morning, I was kind of arguing and agreeing with Auburn fans. It was kind of funny. I was messing with them and. Uh, in two different directions. I, I, when I was kind of reading about t- some teams and creating these rankings that I'll probably post on SB Nation, like the stat rankings, uh, it, it kind of hit me that 83 Auburn, A, was awesome, uh, and B, they got jumped by Miami right before the, you know, after Miami beat Nebraska. So really Auburn probably was one of the most screwed over teams in, in of all the old pole national title uh, all, all that stuff. That that was one of the most uh, egregiously spurned teams when it came to the national title. But then I also mentioned that when I said that, some a couple people on Twitter immediately were like, "Oh, you mean like the '04 team?" No, I I, <laughs> I I will I will continue to to swing the hammer that USC and OU were were the two best teams that year, and that Auburn. The best thing that could have happened to Auburn was that they didn't make that game. Uh, and get trounced by USC instead of Oklahoma. Well, the best thing that happened for that argument was the outcome of that game. If if Oklahoma is more competitive, I don't think right. that argument lives as long as it has. Yeah, but I, I mean, I watched that was Adrian Peterson. I watched a lot of because I have lived in Big Twelve country forever. I watched a lot of OU games that year. That team was so good, and and USC even that first drive of that that Orange Bowl. Like I think OU went down and scored. I think they scored a touchdown, but you could tell like the, White had no time. 
Um, and you, you could just you could tell that they were outmanned, especially in the trenches. Uh, and it was only a matter of time, and USC just uh, swallowed them whole. They had a couple of players like USC had that I, you know, Reggie Bush, especially, but Matt Leiner, and I'm, you know, I, Matt and I worked together. I, so I say this as a friend or whatever. Those guys got a ton of attention, and they yeah. hogged the spotlight to the to the point where I don't think people realize outside of Southern California that Mike Patterson was one of the best players USC's ever had and that how good low people didn't realize until the national title game, how good Lofa Tatupu was. And I just remember I had worked on this big ESPN magazine feature on the two uh, linebackers of that game. It was Lance Mitchell, who was at Oklahoma mm -hmm. and, and Lofa. And I spent a little way more time with Lofa just cause I live out here. And at the end we were doing the photo shoot and he goes, uh, hey, you can't report this yet, but I'm I'm leaving early. I was like, what? Because his name was no one was talking about him leaving early. And I think part of it was Lofa was like, yeah, I'm I'm you know kind of cashing out here in terms of like he had come in there as a walk on, even though his dad was a was a really good player there. He'd come in from like Maine or somewhere a one double A school, and he had uh, he basically said, I'm never going to be six three two fifty. I'm never going to run four four. I am what I am. I'll make my money on my second contract. And I think he made a Pro Bowl right out of the gate. You know, he had such a really good start to his career. And, you know, I, I want to say it was in that game. You're like, wow, this guy is big time. Because you see, now granted, he had, like I said, Sean Cody was a good, you know, was a good, really good player. Patterson was a great college player. So that made those linebackers. Matt Grudegood is yeah. like, you know, he's not much bigger than Spencer Hall. But, you know, he was a really productive college player. And, and part of that was because of, you know, their ability, but also part of it was the guys in front of them. And I just think that that group until that game did not get anywhere near the credit it deserved. Yeah, that defense was was really good. I just pulled up their stats here. Like everybody on that team, they had 120 tackles for loss, which is about as good as you're ever going to see. I think Clemson may have topped that this year, but they needed 15 games. Um, but yeah, Tatupu, uh, Grow to Good, Darnell Bing, um, Sean Cody, yeah, Mike Patterson was the was the stud of of that group. I just remembered, like you know, I we had done a, a magazine story. It was actually the first time I'd really spent much time around Ogeron. It was about their D line, and they were real. Kenichi Udizi, who ended up as a first round pick, was 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 you know was there around that time. They had another player who I think was gone by the time of that team. He may have left. It was Omar Nazel, who was not a you know an NFL player. He was like an undersized defensive end. But you would just see, you know, you, you, when you talk to Pete Carroll, he was like, "This, these guys make everything happen. And I don't think people realize just how good they were until, you know, until they were pretty much gone. Those USC teams, it was fun going out there in October and writing that story. That, that was kind of a, I don't want to say a blind spot because I watched those teams, but just in terms of the, the, the program and the way L, the, that Los Angeles views that program. Um, it was it was a kind of a fun experience to kind of to get immersed in that for a couple of days, see the differences between um, game day at UCLA and USC and, and all of those things. That was a, a good trip. I was glad I did that. Bruce, I have a, I actually have a question just as we'll, we'll seg off the, the book topic. But in the Pac-12 and being out there, it, it's it, it's always amazing to me when I go out there and talk to any coaching staff, fan base, AD, whatever, how much of the world still revolves around USC, regardless of the win-loss total? Is it possible, let's say Clay Helton just it doesn't pan out again. They're left operating at a deficiency relative to what they should be, what we all think they should be, right, with the talent and the history and all that. It's like, it, it, it just amazes me. It, it's like they're bulletproof in terms of perception out there everyone still concerns themselves so much with USC. I don't know if that'll ever go away. It won't. I mean, just as a kind of a, a corollary to that, um, earlier this year, or I guess last 2015, the Pac-12 conference reached out to some media members and did like their 100th anniversary team. This is even a harder thing, honestly, because just you're comparing guys from the like photo black and white photo era to, to now, but basically, so you're trying to name the top 10 players at each position and you go through this and you know, you try to do some research, but even the older players, most of them are USC related. You know, I, I want to say there was a couple of positions where you'd look at it and go, I had seven USC guys out of 10, <laughs> you know, and a couple of the other guys were UCLA guys. 
Um, now, in, now, in fairness, the conference was eight teams back. You know, some of these players who you may have remembered as a great player for whatever school, they may not have technically been in the conference or whatever, but at that point when they played. But it's just insane how much history USC has of great players. Part of it was because, um, you know, and this kind of dovetails back to a little, you know, Bill's, Bill's book talk earlier. One of the um, one of the most talented teams ever, maybe the most talented team ever. I remember doing this for ESPN.com, and I tried to find it before we started the podcast, but those bastards didn't cash it, so it's, it's <laughs> gone somewhere. But it was, I think I had gone through and said, okay, what are the most talented teams? I tried to use the Pro Bowl or the All Pro team as NFL as a barometer. Now, granted. USC was playing NFL-style football for forever, so they're a little more conducive to it. But there were guys, Anthony Munoz, who a lot of people would argue mm. is the greatest offensive lineman the NFL has ever seen. You know, he wasn't as great a player. I don't know if he was always healthy at USC or whatever. But they had like you know guys who Ronnie Lott, Clay Matthews, Senior, um, Bruce Matthews. Uh, you know, Dennis Smith, guys who went to like eight, 15, Marcus Allen Pro Bowls on this team. You know, like you had two guys who may have gone to on, on a team that had like 10 guys who, who went to Pro Bowls, Brad Buddy or Ed Buddy, I forget which one of the BUDDE Buddy offensive guard, you know, was a really good player back then too, but it was so many of them. And they've been good for so long. So there's that. There's the other component of it, which you know, they have now, they actually have really good facilities. When, when Myron Roll was a big recruit, I had done a long story on him. And I remember Myron saying he went out to USC and he kind of made a joke to me. He was like, yeah, when he was sitting in a chair, you know, meeting with one of the coaches, they were like, you're sitting in the chair. And I want to say it may have been of OJ Simpson or whatever. They're saying, <laughs> you're sitting in the very chair that OJ Simpson sat in or whatever. And it was like, yeah, it's actually the chair that's like 40 <laughs> years old. Their weight room, back when Pete Carroll was, was here, the weight room was, was garbage. I mean, my high school weight room wasn't much much worse than USC's weight room. But that's all changed in, like, the last three or four years. The facilities now are, are as good as anybody's. And, you know, beyond that, I would say, you know, uh, Jim Mora beat them three, his first three years and beat them pretty soundly. But then when it came to signing day, USC, even with all the uncertainty that it had, beat them like for like eight out of 10 of the kids they both wanted. And I remember asking Jim Moore about it. And he was like, this didn't happen overnight. These kids grew up. A lot of these kids I'm recruiting now grew up wanting to be Reggie Bush watching those teams. And it's not going to get changed overnight. Sure. And I think, you know, it would take, you know, if if massive NCA sanctions couldn't derail their recruiting uh, nothing will. And, you know, it's, I think it's always going to be that way. I mean, the, the, the environment is what the environment is. And I know that, that, uh, UCLA is not committed to, to playing big time football to the level USC is administratively. And the other places don't have the resources. I know this very well. Cause I know all the Washington state, you know, staffers or whatever, they're going to have to do the bulk of their recruiting is going to be in Southern California or in the state of California and Southern California to a large degree. And they are almost never going to beat USC or UCLA for a kid they want. And they're, you know, and, and so some of those schools won't beat, you know, it's like they, Washington state is competing uh, at best for, like for against Oregon state and recruiting and maybe Utah and sometimes the Arizona schools and maybe they beat Cal for, you know, one or one out of every four kids in the state of California. Whereas it's just that's the food chain in the in the Pac-12 is way more defined than it is in any other any other place. The SEC is not like that. You know, it's not. I mean, yeah, Alabama's going to get more than their share, but there's going to be kids Florida's going to beat them on. There's going to be kids Tennessee's going to beat them on. There's going to be kids now that Ole Miss is going to beat them. Certainly kids A&M and LSU are going to beat them on. You know, some kids go to Auburn. And it's just way more competitive and there's a level of parity. And that's, it's just not that way at USC for, for so many reasons. And history is the biggest one that starts with it. But it's, it's commitment and resources that are above there too. 
Yeah, that recruiting thing, I can't. I, I probably couldn't emphasize that enough to answer my own question. I remember the one of the first things I ever asked James Franklin, and I've had a lot of long interviews with him. But I asked him, I said, "What did you learn when you were out at Washington State?" Because he likes to preach this. You know, I, I've been, I've, I've been a coach in the college and pro, and I've every every region of college. I've learned, you know, I wanted to be well rounded. I said, well, "Okay, what did you learn when you were at Wazoo?" And he said, "I learned where every payphone was in Compton." <laughs> he said, "That's the one thing I learned because." So much of their life revolves around Southern California. So I guess obviously for, for programs, and maybe Wazoo is an extreme example, but, you know, even I would Wazoo's say Wazoo is not that different. Yeah, Wazoo is not, not any different than, than Oregon State's perspective on it. It's not right. that much different than, than Arizona, you know, Arizona's perspective on it. Like CU, which has won a national title and has a lot to offer, you know, if they, you know, they're, they're struggling right now and they got to come into us, you know, come into USC's backyard to get players. Same thing with, with Utah. I mean, I think what Kyle Whittingham's done is terrific, but you know, that's the beast you got to beat. Who's, Hey Bruce, real quick. Who's hurt more in your opinion by, by their conference change and by the disillusion of the old big 12 North. Do you think Colorado has to refine its identity in recruiting or do you think it's Nebraska? Because those programs were able to go into Texas when they were part of the Big 12. And it just seems like they haven't found their footing in recruiting since then. There have been other issues, no doubt. Head coaching, consistency in Colorado's case, huge money issues. But, you know, I, I asked McIntyre about this and, and he said, you know, this the recruiting footprint, they had to rewrite all that stuff. That's what the – no one talks about that. All the great stuff for the Pac-12 and the cultural fit and all that. But – they pulled a lot of players out of Texas. Yeah, it's a good question. I would say Colorado's at more of a disadvantage for this reason. Colorado has got to go into the backyard of the two strongest, most you know, well-stocked programs in their division, which is obviously USC and then UCLA, uh, whereas at least Nebraska is in the more manageable half of the Big Ten, and you're not going to be like trying to sell a kid on, hey, you can be part of a team that's going to go to a bowl game. You know, I mean, I, I like Mike McIntyre a lot, and I think he's a good coach. But, you know, you got to, you know, they're struggling to get to a bowl game. Nebraska, you know, they fired Bull Pelini. He was winning nine <laughs> games a year. I, at least you can sell kids on, hey, you know, you're going to play in a New Year's Day bowl or, you know, you know, you're winning. I just think it's very hard. And I think you mentioned Franklin. I mean, what I, I give him a ton of credit for what he did at Vanderbilt because, you know, they got into the top 25 back-to-back years. And at least you can sell somebody on that. I think it's harder to sell when you're not winning once, you know, because then what, what works against you is, you know, you can get a kid committed because, look, Colorado has a lot to offer people and it's a cool place to go to school and all this. But there's going to be people who are going to go, you know, come in and kids committed to Colorado. And let's say the coach is at, at uh, Oregon or the coach is at UCLA. And he's going to go, you're really going to go to Cal? Are you going to go to Colorado? Those guys, you know, they've had three losing seasons in a row. They may not be there next year. Who your coach yeah, is going to be? Right. And I think, you know, that's not to say Bo, Bo Pelini got fired just now, you know, last year. But there's less likelihood of somebody getting fired for going, winning nine games than there is for somebody not going to a bowl game. It is always funny, and I bet Bruce can attest to this as well, when you talk to ADs, and, co- and some coaches too, and McIntyre didn't say this, but people talk about Colorado, and, and are they focused, do they want to win, you know, what are they going to do, you'll hear the excuse all the time, well, you know, there, there's, Boulder offers so much more, <laughs> well, but they say it as a, as a pejorative almost, whereas so many coaches will always talk about, you should come to, you know, school X, or, or this state, or whatever, because it offers so much, and it's always funny to see how that extracurricular stuff flips around when you haven't been winning, and you, you have to start making excuses, I mean, I don't think the fact that you can hike and ski in Boulder has as anything one way or the other to do with landing recruits or managing a program or garnering interest. I think if you were winning football games out there, people would show up. Yeah. And a lot of the kids, let's be honest, a lot of the kids who you're recruiting, who are going to help you compete for a top 15 team don't ski and they don't care about hiking. And honestly, (laughs) I mean, I didn't grow up in the, I didn't grow up out here. But I never thought twice about hiking until I moved to Seattle when I was in my mid twenties. <laughs> well, the other thing, this bridges into something we've talked about on the show, I guess, about a month ago. Bill and I, the importance uh, when I was at Waco this summer, and and it was my first trip to Waco. 
realizing how badly they need some chain restaurants for the sole purpose <laughs> of recruiting kids because as great and, and fun and, and memorable as all those local haunts are in whatever town you go to college in, oh, it's because I started making fun of Shakespeare's in Columbia and Bill got a little huffy. <sighs> but kids don't know what that is, right? But there's such a – on recruiting weekends, if you have the weather in your advantage or disadvantage or whatever, if you can give them any kind of sense of familiarity, it's amazing how how, how much these towns would covet like – you know, I used Applebee's as a joke and people jumped me on Twitter, but maybe something a little more – Upscale, yeah, like no, you, you're dead on. I remember going, this is back in my ESPNU days, and uh, Rock Hill, South Carolina is not far from where ESPNU was, and Clowney was going to be a senior in high school, so myself and Craig Hobart uh, went, to, went to one of his practices, and then we are going to go meet another you know, ESPNer for dinner. And we drove around Rock Hill for a half hour, and I just remember thinking, Clowney better get to the NFL fast so he can open up an outback around here because there is <laughs> nothing we could find to eat. No, it was like very – and maybe we were, you know, I could have, should have asked Chris Lowe where we should have been going, but it was just like we couldn't find anything that was just kind of like recognizable. And, and it works in reverse when you have these kids in Dallas who are looking at, you know, uh, yeah. Laramie, Wyoming because they've been passed right. over by six or seven schools and, and there are only two or three restaurants in the whole town. <laughs> and it's And it's, you know – the, the worst weather times 10 that, that Texas is going to get, you're going to get. I, I remember, yeah, I think Josh Doxson probably has some stories about just getting homesick going up there. From That's why. To, to, more so than a place like Fort – like if you go to Fort Collins, Colorado, it's pretty nice. It's actually a fun place to go to. There's there's nightlife. The campus community is pretty, pretty ingrained with the town, and it reminds me a little bit of, of you know a normal college – like a, a big-time college football town. The stadium's not great, but whatever. If you go to Laramie, it's a Cormac McCarthy novel, and I say that with a ton of love in my heart for, for Wyoming. <laughs> but it, it's it's always fascinating to me to see who they can get up there, can they keep them, and then worry about development and strategy and depth and all that other stuff. It, it they're at such a disadvantage to pull because they've got to pull kids out of either the California JUCOs or Texas after they've been picked. You know, after Texas has been picked clean. Because even a program like Iowa State is going to have a tremendous advantage over Wyoming. Right. So actually, back to USC for a second. Um, I this this topic has kind of fascinated me since I went out there. Like basically, when I was I got to tailgate a little bit before the USC game, and I was asking everybody in the host tailgate the same question, and that was basically, okay, so you're about to hire a new coach. Uh, you assume that Pat Hayden's going to hire from within, hire a quote unquote USC guy. Is that something you really value, or do you just want somebody good? And every like it was a hundred percent. No, bring in Tom Herman. Bring in somebody new. Don't, we don't have to hire from within the family. And then he hires from within the family. Um, leaving aside any value judgment of of Clay Helton, is that jobs different enough to where that's a legitimate prospect? Like you you can't coach USC well until you've been here because. I mean, Pete Carroll hadn't been there. Yeah, Pete Carroll was the fifth choice. That worked out pretty great for USC. They won championships and kind of changed how a lot of people, you know, run 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 teams. So I think there was something to be said for that. You know, when I think about it, it's because there's been so much chaos at USC. As as the Sarkeesian run was way more of a disaster than Lane Kiffin. Because Lane Kiffin really had the bulk of the sanctions that he walked into and, you know, was coming out on another way. Now, there was issues there, but at least he did have a good year there. Uh, You know, the year they beat Oregon, won 10 games, and then they kind of went backwards and couldn't get out of their own way. Uh, I'm not sure the institutional institutional knowledge helped either guy, to be honest. Uh, You know, Clay Helton happened to be there. They knew him. I think if you had ha- asked that question you asked at the tailgate to old USC players, you might have got a different answer. Mm-hmm. Now, some I know uh, were not thrilled. Some of the Pete Carroll guys were not thrilled about the hire of Clay Helton when it happened. When I say Pete Carroll guys, I mean guys who played for him in the early 2000s, mid-2000s. But the older group, you know, pre-Pete Carroll guys, and a lot of those matter because matter those are the ones who know Pat Hayden better. I think they had a, had a more of a connection to, to Clay Helton and the USC place. I mean, if you had asked me if they could get Tom Herman, they should have hired Tom Herman. Right. But 
I would tell you that about, you know, 90% of the schools with coaches now. And I could be wrong. Tom's only been a head coach one year. He's had a terrific first year, uh, you know, and, and there's a, I don't know if it's recency bias or whatever with that, but we'll see. I mean, Clay Helton's walks into a tough situation in this regard in that, uh, you know, no matter what, what he does, I mean, he's going to have a new AD coming in. You know, we knew Pat Hayden wasn't going to be long for there, so there's that level of uncertainty. And I think even some of the hires he made, which I thought Clancy Pendergast did a really good job for him the first time, people are like, well, it's more of the old USC guys or whatever. And some of the guys that he brought on, I mean, I, I don't know how fair that is. I think people want change. I think some of the stuff that has hurt them has been they've had like six different offensive line coaches in the last six years. That's the worst position to have instability at of any position, and USC's had it. So a lot of these things are working against them. Their schedule is not easy. They do not play any really cluster of bad teams. When your worst non-conference opponent is a Utah State team that's won like 30 games the last three years or something like that, you know, you have a brutal schedule. They have Texas and Notre Dame. That's not that's not good. So, uh, you know, I think I don't want to say the deck is stacked against him, but if he goes eight and four, you know, three years in a row, there's going to be a lot of people looking at their watch, going, "Hey, we got a new AD. Let's 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 get moving on this one." Yeah, that that's just been one of the you know, obviously, I think um, John McKay had a little bit of USC. I don't completely remember his backstory. And obviously, uh, you know, he was replaced by John Robinson, who was, I think his offensive coordinator. That, that was great. But then since Robinson left the first time, you know, Tolner had one good year. Then they brought in an outsider, Larry Smith, who did quite well for about three or four years and then, then fell apart. Uh, then they bring Robinson back and he does very little, uh, Paul Hackett does nothing. And then they bring in an outsider, Pete Carroll, who does great. So it's just kind of interesting to me that that that, that mentality remains. Yeah, um, and, and in fairness, and I think this needs to be mentioned, you know, is the Pac-12 is much deeper now yeah. than it was when those Maybe Pete ever. Carroll great teams 10 years ago. There was a year when it was basically USC and just Cal, and then the rest, nothing else was in the top 25. You look now, both Washington schools for the first time are very good. It hasn't happened in, you know, in years. You also have Stanford, you know, Harbaugh built it and David Shaw has sustained it. That's a legitimate top 10, top 15 program. Even if Oregon took a, took a back step when Mariota left, they're still really good. Uh, yeah, back step is still an eight and four team. Yeah, exactly. When back step used to be five and seven for them. Uh, you look at the Arizona schools. You know, they're both dangerous schools. I mean, they when Rich Rod got there, that was the best you know, his first three years were the best three-year run the school has ever had. So, and Utah's, you know, Utah is a good team. They beat Michigan last year, and Michigan was very good. So, I mean, there's just not a lot of easy outs in there, whereas it used to be the conference was was pretty watered down. And Jim Mora's better now than UCLA has been in the yeah. last probably, you know, 15 or 20 years. That Mora thing is it is just from a personal standpoint, from our, from our shingle at SB Nation, we can't particularly do much with UCLA because of their media <laughs> policies. But I think it's it's just it's an underreported story. We talk about USC in terms of the what people in Los Angeles are talking about. We assume, but to me, UCLA, I never would have thought this would have happened with him. Just the dynamic. I don't know if it was they they went for for their own type of Carroll hire, but having known him just as a fan of the Atlanta Falcons, I, I didn't see the consistency that he would bring. And while they may still be under the perception shadow of USC, they've done a really good job recruiting, especially yep. relative to the rest of the Pac-12 South. Yeah, he's look, he's got a good staff, I think, for that. Uh, and they have they have something they can sell because they were they were beating USC, you know, three years in a row. I mean, because where they're going to beat USC on a lot of kids. I think some things have broken well for them. I mean, look, they ended up with Josh Rosen because – you know, Stanford, you know, didn't go after him or wasn't, a, you know, big Josh Rosen school. USC didn't either. USC, USC instead went a different direction. That quarterback is now at Arkansas. So I think that helped them. I don't think, you know, if Josh Rosen had Juju Smith and some of the USC receivers, I think he'd throw <laughs> for 5,000 yards. But they still have they still have a lot of talent. I mean, Kenny Clark was probably the the best defensive tackle and you know on the west coast and he wasn't 
you know, DeForest Buckner is really good too, but they had, you know, Miles Jack, but Miles Jack got hurt. I mean, I think they, you know, they, they were as banged up, them and Notre Dame were as banged up as any teams I can think of that were good teams last year. Yeah. All right, let me, one more one more Pac-12 question, then we'll get off of it, Bruce. So you look at the SEC, there's a blueprint, pretty pretty identifiable blueprint. You look at the Big 12, there's a blueprint, pretty identifiable. Big 10, because of the turnover and the, and the amount of, let's say, um, culture that they've imported from the SEC and the way that you know Ohio State rebuilt itself and Michigan still being TBD, maybe a little harder to build a pretty simple definition there. But in the Pac-12, it feels like the blueprint when you get outside of USC is to do something dramatically different. And when I say that, I think of Oregon and Stanford. Stanford, you know, is a Northwestern game away from probably being in the playoff this year. And I think they'd have the Heisman winner if they had if they had kept their title game on a Friday night instead of a Saturday. It's something sometimes it's that simple. I really feel like a lot of people would have seen McCaffrey in a completely different light had they had a chance to watch him on an unrivaled night, you know, basically as a national viewing audience. So you have those two programs and then USC. Is is that the message in the Pac-12 where you, just, you have to go out and, and really reinvent yourself, reinvent, reinvent what, what success means and how you get there versus whereas the Big 12, it's you're going to run this style of offense with these style players, the SEC, defensive dominant, pro style, et cetera, et cetera. I think that that's probably makes the most sense because in order to compete, I don't think you can out USC, USC. Then again, right. that's kind of what Stanford's done to win yeah. a couple of titles. I mean, I think what it comes back to is playing to the strengths of what what's in your quote unquote like DNA or what's in, you know, in that regard. But ultimately, if you have a good coach, I think if, if Rich Rodriguez was a coach at Oregon State or was a coach at Washington State or even the coach at, at UCLA, I think he would win a lot. I mean, I think if you have a good coach who is who knows what they're doing and believes in their system and the school is committed to it, I think it's going to work. And it's more likely to work out there than I think it probably is at you have a better chance of having that thrive than than maybe you do in the in the SEC. And the the comparison I would say is Brett Bielema, I'm not saying he everything he does is what Stanford does, but Brett Bielema has more of a fighting chance, you know, in another league, whereas he's gonna try to out physical Alabama, or he's going to out physical, you know, some of these other schools, it's like, good luck out physical in Ole Miss now. Right. I mean, right. you know, it's, that's, that's the problem, you know, or, or Georgia or whatever, you know, and, and some of these teams, uh, they're, they have such good guys in the front seven that it can, it can screw up your, your plans unless it's very, very different. Um, and you're, unless you're really, really good at executing or your talent levels up. So I think, that changes, whereas, you know, Stanford can maul some of these other teams. I mean, I, I did sideline at the end of last year of an Arizona-Arizona State game. I was shocked at how small Arizona's, you know, guys were in the front seven. Mm-hmm. When you see a power five, especially a power five team that's, you know, that's that's last year won the, won the division title and has, you know, was in the top 25 for a chunk. I mean, they are very, very small. I mean, they didn't have Scooby Wright, and they were really banged up too. But still, just to see what they were playing with, um, you know, and I go back and I like just kind of rattling through it. When I saw, uh, I did a bunch of Big 12 games this year, and I remember having this conversation with a couple of my colleagues, and they were like, yeah, they thought that they were, they were not fans of the LSU offense. They thought LSU was really overrated. And I was like, LSU is going to beat the hell out of Texas Tech. <laughs> and I was like, I saw them in person three times I saw Texas Tech. They were going to get mauled, especially by a good running team, much less a team with Leonard Fournette. I was like, mm-hmm. I don't think – there's no way they're going to cover against this team just because you have to see it in person to see what they have. And I think, again – Leonard Fournette and LSU had their hands full to put a mile against Alabama, you know, against, you know, average teams or teams below average personnel wise, they're going to just, they're just going to blow them off the field. Yeah. I think um, the PAC 12 did a really, really nice job of, I'm going to see into the sec here. Uh, a couple of years ago, the, the PAC 12 did a really nice job of just making hires, like whatever that was, 2011, 12, 13, um, it seemed like every single school that had to make a hire upgraded. I guess maybe not USC, but otherwise. I mean, Arizona, Arizona State, um, Washington, Washington State, Stanford uh, managed to stay at a certain level after losing Harbaugh. Um, 
I, I was really, really impressed. And, and the, you know, go figure, the conference product improves overall when you hire better coaches. This offseason, um, saw the same thing with the ACC. It seemed like every single ACC team made an upgrade uh, compared to where it was last year. The SEC basically stayed within the, ho- the family for the most part. And I, I, I wanted to ask, what do you feel about – how do you feel about the SEC hires? I mean, is that something – you know, you just when you recruit that well, you don't have to innovate. You don't have to bring in somebody from the outside, and, and everything will be just fine. Or, you know, Virginia hires a, a Bronco Mendenhall, and, and South Carolina hires the guy Florida fired a year ago. Yeah, you'd you'd think that Will Muschamp will have learned. You'd hope some of the guys who get the second chance that they will be better and, and correct some of the mistakes that they made as head coaches. I don't know. I mean, South Carolina, you know, hiring search was very crazy in the way it kind of played out and how it dragged out for as long as it did. And, and I think they needed a change, clearly, because Spurrier had kind of run on fumes. So we'll see what what Muschamp's done. I'm not as down on the hire as, as you know, I do a podcast with Stu Mandel. Stu hates the hire. <laughs> I'm a little more. I'm a little more. Uh, I guess open-minded to it, just because I know. And and in this regard, maybe I'm more a little a little more um, conservative on it. In that I saw the difference when Ogeron was the interim head coach out here compared to all the mistakes he made as a head coach at Ole Miss. Exactly. It was a completely different guy. And I, I'm not saying all head coaches learn from the mistakes they made, but I saw that what he did, and I know the, how he changed from it when he was the head coach at USC or the interim head coach for, you know, almost a full season. Whereas, I, you know, I, I'm giving, I guess, Muschamp the benefit of the doubt because he wasn't a complete disaster for everything he did there. Right. But the offense, I think the biggest mistake that he made was he kept on hitting the reset button, and it was hard, and I – I think from talking to people who are who are there, when your offensive line coach does not get along with your offensive coordinator, you have bad staff chemistry. It's hard to dig out of that hole, and I think ultimately that was his undoing. And the you know look, the expectations are higher at Florida than they're probably going to be at South Carolina, and I think it just eventually imploded. I don't know. I'm not as we'll see how how it goes with Kirby Smart, and you know because there's going to be there's going to be talent there. I think. I think that's another place that they could use a change. And I like I, I like the hire of Muschamp at South Carolina a lot more than the situation that, that was smart in, in Georgia. And that, I don't mean that to be a hot take, but Muschamp does have, I think, the benefit of having gone through this entire process in a higher pressure situation. I'm from Georgia. I know what resources South Carolina has, and I know what they have to fight against in recruiting. I like Muschamp as a recruiter, and I also like the fact that he rehired Kurt Roper. I think yeah. I mean he he's he said multiple times had had I hired Roper to yeah. begin with and not Charlie Weiss, it would have been a completely different story. I think when you look at what he can do on defense, then you start looking at the landscape of the division. Uh, it, it's nothing against Kirby Smart at all, but to me, I, I mean it, it's hard to say this because someone can come right back over the top and say, well, Muschamp wasn't successful, but Smart is not a known quantity. Muschamp is. And well, I also think that the awesome. pressure on Smart is is going to be astronomical. What kind of what kind of uh, kind of time frame do you afford him if you're a Georgia booster disgruntled with what you've done you know I think uh, yeah and I think what you're saying also is I don't know in my head I almost think it's worse to be the first time head coach on the big stage and the second time head coach on the not quite as big stage but you've already at least been through it and kind of learned from your mistakes and I'm with you I think that I think Kurt Roper you know if David David Cutcliffe knows infinitely more about football than pretty much anyone who's going to criticize any one of the three of us. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, and I'm not saying that he gets carte blanche on everything he should ever do, but if David Cutcliffe thinks the guy's a really, really smart football person, I would give that more benefit of the doubt than somebody's going to comment on one of my stories. He's also been an OC. <laughs> Roper's been an OC now at Kentucky, Tennessee, Duke, Ole Miss, kind of. Uh, I mean, he, he's got the experience. It, it's just not it, – it's not that sexy. What, let me ask you this, Bruce, about the first-year head coach on this major platform. It didn't used to be like that. I feel like we're losing the medium job step. And in Smart's case, he turned down a litany of jobs for years. We're seeing, it's the money you know, part, though. Like like Mark yeah, Snyder, that's who, what it who is. used yeah, to right. be the head coach at Marshall, uh, he was at Ohio State as a defensive coordinator, and he had said – 
and this is going back almost probably 10 years. I'm trying to remember. I remember like actually where I lived when he told me that and we had this conversation. He, and this is again, a while ago, he goes, the money that, that we are making at these places means you may have to take a pay cut to take one of these Mac jobs. Yeah. And that has changed it. Whereas there's a bunch of guys like Lincoln Riley, you know, Lincoln Riley wasn't going to go to East Carolina anyway, because they screwed over, you know, one of his mentors. Right. right. He's not, I, I don't think guys like that are going to be in the position. They're going to be more choosy on what they take as opposed to jump into a situation, especially if it's a school that's like, uh, you know, you can't, you might not be able to win there. And then or it's a, such an uphill battle and you're going, wait a minute, what did I leave behind? I mean, you listen to Brent Venables talk about why he wants to still be a coordinator and have his hands in the middle of, of a lot of other stuff as opposed to like, you know, be in the head coach role. He's making plenty of money, way more money than I'm sure he ever thought he would have made when he was a player at Kansas State. And he gets to, you know, he gets to be a lot more selective in what he wants. And the quality of life is 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 more manageable than if, let's say, Brent took the uh, Texas State job or right. something like that. But but just, and I, I agree with everything you're saying, and that's definitely the root cause is that life can be cushier for a longer amount of time. But from an experience standpoint, I think they're losing this invaluable step of, of spending some time as, you know, life in the QSER, the AAC, or, mm-hmm. you know, a, a guy like, so Jeff Collins, the DC of Florida, as far as I know, sniffs around with UCF this year. He's going to get a head coaching job because he's not quite at the tier of attention that, that Kirby was. If, let's say, hypothetically, Kirby's still at Alabama for another two years and Jeff gets a UCF type job, then they're both competing. It seems like the resume with the head coaching experience would be the winner. I, I, it's, um, I, I understand the cause of it. I'm just curious. I wonder if these coaches themselves are thinking, am I screwing myself out of this, this invaluable head coaching experience at a, at a smaller school? That's a great point because, you know, one of the two best coaches in college football right now is Urban Meyer. And he started at the Mac before he got yeah, to Utah. Yeah. He was at Bowling Green. And there's a lot of people I know in the business who think, you know, you, that's the way you do it is you make the three layer. You go from, you know, low mid-major to the high mid-major and then you get the big job because then you're ready, you know. And you could make the case Jim Harbaugh was at San Diego. You know, yeah. that wasn't a Mac school. That wasn't a division. It was an FCS program. But you kind of learn there and then you kind of. You know, when he took Stanford over, Stanford wasn't obviously what it is now. So I think there's a lot to be said for guys who make that. Nick Saban is a way better coach now than he was at LSU and certainly than he was at Michigan State. And I think that there's a lot of guys who who do pick up those things and you make your mistakes on a different level. I mean, I would say this, again, getting back to the Ogeron example, because I, I know I was around it a lot. He made a lot of mistakes at Ole Miss, which, you know, Ole Miss wasn't Florida, but Ole Miss is still a big SEC program. And I think if he had been the head coach, let's say, at San Diego or UNLV or Fresno State, I think it would have been much different than my first meeting. I'm in the SEC where I'm on a big stage and everything I say is going to get out and whatever. And and I think that those things are different. And I think that the rare guy is Bob Stoops who can hit right. the ground at a big school and win a national title in two years. I mean, you're not going to see a lot. I mean, the odds of that happening, I think, are really, really slim these days. Look what Brian Kelly, where he learned and what he did. And I think those are, are more in line with what schools are, are want as opposed to the guy who jumps in the middle of it and they're going to turn it around. doesn't mean it can't happen. I mean, Jimbo Fisher has been able to do that. But those, I think, are still the minority. Right. So the one B behind Tom Herman, right, this 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 past cycle to me was Fuente because he came from a great pedigree with TCU. He could have stayed on with, with teams that are close to national title contention as as a dynamite coordinator. But instead, I mean, when you we talk about resume points, he pulls off the damn near impossible because I, I, I've been to that campus multiple times throughout my career and. They, they've done a little, but they haven't done much, and it's pretty bleak. And what he was able to do recruiting under the radar of about eight SEC programs in that in that area, building the winner and doing – I mean, it's it, – I, I really don't know – and again, this may be just 
just my my local bias. I don't know if, of a better resume point. By the way, Godfrey. Yes. Um, we, you, we've been doing this a while because I was about to reference Justin Fuente for a completely different reason. That's yeah, so, there you go. See, we're like an old married couple now, Bill. That's yes, right. you are. Uh, I, I'll jump in with my point real quick, and then I'll yeah. And Fuente, we need to look. The, when I talked to Fuente a couple of years ago. Uh, he said the most valuable experience he had was when he was like OC at Illinois State because it's a bunch of young young guys uh, trying to learn. You know, they're 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 swimming on their own, and um, you you. It seems to me like if if all you have is experience under, I I, I don't want to sell Kirby Smart short at all, but because he really might be awesome. But it seems like if you haven't swum on your own in that kind of situation, you're more likely to lean on well. Uh, for this example, well, Coach Saban would do this. Uh, and that's that's tough. It's it's hard to imitate Saban. You kind of have to be your own guy, um, and you learn to be your own guy when you're off in the wilderness a little bit. Yeah, I think that's that that's a great point. I think there's a lot of validity to that. I mean, not to not to make fun of. I've made fun of the Bronco hire before on here, and I, I mean, I don't really mean to make fun of Bronco or UVA, but I just I can't get over how perfect a fit that was, and how smart a hire I thought that was in just terms of, in just terms of the fit. Between the AD, Whit Babcock, between the culture at Virginia Tech, and between the coach, Fuente, that I talked to multiple times at Memphis, that's what you dream of, and that's a stair-step guy. So, um, all right, Bill, we need to let Bruce probably go uh, back to his job. <laughs> yeah, we. I, I definitely appreciate you coming on, Bruce. This My was, pleasure. Uh, it's always good to talk football with you guys. Hopefully, I will see you guys on the road soon enough. Most likely, more Godfrey than me, because, you know, I've traveled about once a year, but I'm going to try to change that, I think. All I'm right. the man of many Hampton Inns. All right, Bruce, we appreciate it. You can check Bruce out over at uh, FS1, foxsports.com. You can check out the Audible with Ian Stu Mandel. Uh, the QB is in paperback right now? The QB is in paperback. Thank you. Is that everything? That is everything, yes. That Perfect. is everything. Kane uh, Mutiny, by the way, I want to read again because it, I read about eight years ago. Kane Mutiny now is like when, when ESPN did the U, Kane Mutiny was going on Amazon for like $60 a copy. Yeah, that's my complaint. I can't get a copy of Kane Mutiny. Yeah. Um, according to Amazon right now, used, you can get a copy for a penny. Oh, okay. well, it was hot 10 years ago. It was hot four years ago. <laughs> Well, you yes. know, this might be a case where it's, it, it takes eight months to ship to you. I don't, I'm not sure. Yeah, I looked, I looked jump right during now. the second U, I think, because I wanted to, to read it, and it was going for about 90 bucks. So, Yeah, new is 50, used is a penny. So as long as you're okay with touching books that I'm afraid that to know what it's touched. been used with. Then, if that's Bruce, how much <laughs> of that penny do you get? Fans. Yeah, how much of that penny do you get? Probably zero. Probably <laughs> zero. About as much as I got for helping with the U on the <laughs> That's right. All right. Well, I, we, we do appreciate it. I'm sure we'll try to wait at least like a year before asking you to come back on. Okay. Let me know what you guys need. If I figured out Skype by then, I'll be good to go. Awesome.